Hello, friends. This is Rupert Radio, the show where we expand our awareness and increase our degrees of freedom. If you're new here, welcome. If you're not, welcome back. I'm your host, Blake Rupert, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Deus Forte. Deus has built a thriving business of transformational coaching in Vancouver, British Columbia. He's also a plant medicine facilitator. In our conversation, Deus draws on his hundreds of hours facilitating plant medicine ceremonies to offer some practical tips, guidelines, and insights that I think will be immediately implementable. Implementable? Is that a word? Implementable? (laughs) For you, the listener. Things that you can put in your life, you know, to help out. Especially if you're somebody who's interested in either participating in a psychedelic experience or maybe even aspiring to be someone who delivers them. And just before we begin, just a little bit of housekeeping. This episode starts off a little bit different as you're hearing us do a grounding exercise followed by gratitude and lastly, intention setting. This format is found in many different traditions, but I personally really came to it in the Eight Shields model in Nature Connection Facilitation. And I did this twice a day, every day for a year. And now it's something that I like to do in any circumstance in which I'm hoping to cultivate or invite in a little bit extra level of presence and authentic connection. So be prepared because it is about a minute of more reflectional invitations. And if you don't want to participate, by all means, just tune out for those 60 seconds. Or you could play along at home and follow the instructions and see how it feels for you. I have sped up the sounds a little bit, Um, So in person, this would typically take a little bit longer. But later in the episode, we'll refer back to it. And the advantage is that this very simple formula, grounding in your physical sensations, followed by searching for a source of gratitude, and then deciding upon an intention, a direction, for whatever activity you're about to engage in. For what it's worth, traditionally, this process is done both at the beginning of an activity as well at the end. At the end, instead of intention, it would be just checking in on how the day went or maybe revisiting what your intention was or what takeaways did you have. That's probably enough for now. So let's dive in. I think it'd be a great way to start off with checking in to our physical forms and grounding ourselves in the spaces that we occupy. Maybe... In today's version, let uh, I invite you to seek out a space of light from where you sit and to do a full body scan as you engage with that light. Now, shifting your awareness to any, any darkness or any, any lack of light. Coming back 
to equilibrium. If you're feeling so inclined, I'd love to hear your what you've experienced. Just noticing that there's actually quite a lot of levity in my body right now. Mostly noticing it in the heart and then any kind of density or darkness I'm feeling in the stomach right now. Like there's... Um, It might actually just be the food that I ate, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think it's just the food. There's, there's also like, a, I don't know. There's some kind of like really difficult to articulate sensation down in my stomach. Hmm. It's kind of like um, restlessness. It's like a restlessness kind of, or at least the response is restlessness to the the sensation Mm -hmm. I noticed that the lightness that I detected was very soothing and inviting and there is like a ah and I noticed with some surprise that it was my inclination or pattern to do that and then kind of rush through it. Like I was, would be like, Oh yeah, it's the, uh, and then as soon as that sensation was like, Oh, I know it's going to feel good. I like my intention would shift off of it and I'd be like, wait a second. Why am I, I found something beautiful. Why am I letting it? Why am I like moving away from it? Mm. So that was, that was interesting. That is interesting. You're voicing that on the last podcast conversation that we had. Mm, it's a big part of my life recently. Mm. Big part of my meditation practice. And I noticed um, the darkness that I found was, it felt like devoid of excitement. It wasn't that it was scary or offensive, but at the same time I like would see it and be like, oh yeah, that's, that's useless. I avoid that. That's not good. And I was like, ah, like I haven't even really understood it. There's when I turn my attention back, I realize there's so much more of that than my like cursory appreciation. It's like, why did I, I felt like afraid of it or felt like I didn't want to engage and just, ah, that's curious. <laughs> well, with this grounding, I'm curious what uh, gratitude we have moving through us today. What was the question? What gratitude we have moving uh, through us today. Gratitude. I'm really grateful for the weather right now. <laughs> it makes such a big difference in how I'm feeling. And I'm also really grateful to be living um, with people that I enjoy being mm. around, like having a community of friends and family right in my home space. A lot of people are feeling quite isolated and quite lonely and even angry, a lot of different things from isolation. And that hasn't been a part of my experience at all. I'm really grateful for the community and the connections that I have so close. Mm -hmm. I'm really grateful for plants and animals and for the ever building sense of curiosity I have to actually like pay attention and notice them 
the other day I just sat in a park for like three hours and listened to birds and noticed when they would go quiet or when they would start to sing or when a hawk would appear, what the other birds did. And mm. it's something that I've heard people talk about all my life about like noticing those things, but for one reason or another, another, I just haven't done it. And I am yeah really enjoying making the effort recently. Mm. So with this grounding and this gratitude, what is our direction? What is our intention? To play. <laughs> to have fun. Mm. And to explore, of course. <laughs> Good plug. <laughs> yeah, I want to build off that a little bit. And I want to take the opportunity to spar with you. I really appreciate your wit and your intellect and your heart. And I find it for myself that having people to engage with on a like really intentional level is such a valuable way of spending time. So yeah, I'm really excited um, to have this conversation to move through, through these different ideas. Mm. Well, welcome everyone to Rupert Radio. I'm Blake Rupert, and today I'm here with the amazing Deus Forche. Deus is an incredible poet, uh, plant medicine facilitator, and many other things. But rather than give an introduction, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Thanks for having me, Blue Blake. <laughs> Blue. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Deus Forche. I'm a plant medicine facilitator. I work with psilocybin as well as with Bufo, which is the toad medicine and 5-MeO-DMT. And myself and my partner work together. We facilitate retreats and one-on-one -on -one clients in Mexico. And then we also offer various forms of transformational coaching, workshops, breath work, and um, other experiences like that here in Vancouver, BC. So I... The things that I offer predominantly revolve around creating a transformational experience over an extended period of time for a person so that it really roots deeply in their life and takes permanent effect rather than offering these peak experiences like one-off experiences. It's about really diligent preparation, really carving out what is the intention for this, and then tracking all of the little movements that occur throughout the experience and integrating them and applying them in a lasting way in people's lives. So that's really the focus of everything that I do. Yeah, I appreciate that summation. I think through you, Deus, and your partner, Aga, you two were some of the first that I, in, at least in my experience, who emphasized the role of integration and of preparation. And it's such a important factor of any transformational experience. And I think at the same time, it's one of those things that it takes work, it takes diligence. So yeah. I, I appreciate that for the average person, it's maybe not the sexiest part of the process. So thanks for yeah. doing what you do to build that up. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. And it's also for our benefit as well, to be perfectly honest about it. Um, it's certainly for the participants benefit, but it also helps us kind of gauge a person's readiness and the specific things that they're bringing into the space rather than just coming in cold Turkey, because these are very delicate spaces that quite frequently can bring to the surface, 
um, core wounds, unprocessed or uh, shadow aspects of our psyche that are connected to things that have happened to us all the way back in childhood, maybe even in experiences that we had that we don't even remember. So being well acquainted with each other prior to stepping into these spaces is really important for us as well to be able to hold the proper space for the person. And it seems with such a potent technology, uh, whether that's psychedelics or just any kind of invested personal or group therapy, that why wouldn't you like want to really put the work in to maximize its effects and maybe till the soil a bit and make sure there's no rocks or weeds growing there. And then also to give it some fertilizer and care after the process or the seeds are sown. Yeah, definitely. Maybe a place we could start is to look at what you see the role of these kinds of therapies in growth versus healing. I'm curious because it seems like at least in the way that it's psychedelic medicines are becoming legalized and part of the medical system, there's really this focus on healing (laughs) pre-existing wounds or injuries or illnesses. And I think for so many people who have engaged with these uh, technologies for aeons, we realize that it's not simply a case of uh, eliminating things like depression, like SSRI would. And mm-hmm. yeah, I'm curious if you, if you see things along similar lines or yeah, what's your stance? Yeah, this is a really interesting topic because when we're working with um, plant medicines like ayahuasca or peyote or psilocybin or some of the psychedelic animal medicines, which is bufo or Um, some of the synthetic molecules like LSD or 5-MeO-DMT. It's very, very different from when we're working with something that we're prescribed from a doctor. So even though a lot of the above ground studies and the application potential of these medicines is really focused on um, individual conditions, because you need that in order to be able to study its effects, you know, and its applicability in that type of medical model, it's important to be able to track what exactly you're targeting and what the effects of it are. The medicines themselves don't really function in that kind of inert, predictable way. Like these are very intelligent substances that we're working with and every single person responds to them completely differently. So it can be kind of a misnomer and misleading and has the potential to actually be an obstacle or a barrier if somebody has an expectation on what is going to unfold when they start working with these medicines, because by their very nature, they're unpredictable. So somebody that I've come across, his name is Rack Razam. He talks a lot about 5-MeO-DMT and Bufo in a, in a really beautiful, eloquent, artistic way. He, he mentions that there's three components in the experience of 5-MeO-DMT, which is really unique substance, but I like the way that he framed this, where about a third of it has to do with the dosage that you're working with. A third of it has to do with the person's ability to surrender versus resist whatever it is that comes up. And then a third of it is actually grace. So two thirds of the experience is formulated by our ability to surrender to the unknown that is unfolding. 
And I found this to, I don't know if the proportions are exact, <laughs> but I do really appreciate this frame because it gives us the opportunity to participate in the great mystery that is unfolding through the use of these substances. And some of the ways that we can participate in this whole unfolding is to get clear on the intentions as to why we're doing it. You know, this is connected to the set and the setting, which I'm sure everybody who's listening to this podcast has heard about, you know, the internal state that you are bringing to the experience, as well as the external environment and company that is surrounding you. So we get to approach these experiences with an intention that is uniting what it is we are consciously moving towards in our lives and how we feel about that. That is really where our participatory role is in the preparation. But when we're in the experience, we have no control whatsoever over the content. The intention doesn't necessarily correlate to the content of the, the experience. So in regards to healing versus, what was the other thing that I was comparing it to? Healing versus growth. Healing versus growth. This is, this is fascinating because then we'd have to go into the definitions of each, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's, it's not as though we're trying to get rid of something. Mm. You know, it's not like we're trying to heal something that is unhealed within us. It's more about coming to terms with the way things actually are and being okay with that in a way that equips us and empowers us to move forward in our lives, which I wouldn't really call healing. It is more about integration and transformation and growth by waking up to the reality of what's always existed inside of us, but we haven't really become conscious of and learning how to work with those energies deliberately and intentionally in a way that actually benefits us and benefits the world. So it's mm -hmm. not like you're taking a magic pill that's going to just get rid of something that's uncomfortable inside of you, it might actually aggravate that thing because it's rising up to the surface to be seen and felt and integrated and processed. And if anybody's ever had a bad trip, quote unquote, with any of these substances, this is often what is occurring within those spaces. Something really uncomfortable that is already present within the being is rising up to be addressed. So as far as I'm concerned, the whole approach to working with these medicines is all about transformation and growth by waking up to what has always been present, but we haven't been aware of, or we haven't been able to navigate. Mm -hmm. There's so many places to take what you just said. I have three ideas in mind and I'll start with the first, which is for anyone who's listening. And if they're unfamiliar with Bufo or 5-MeO DMT, um, I would point you towards episode five of the podcast in which I interviewed Aga Postoska. I've been practicing that pronunciation. <laughs> well done. <laughs> she, uh, she does a great overview. And for context, she's Deus's uh, partner in this practice. So it might be beneficial to check in and see her perspective on things concurrently with this episode. The second line of that I wanted to follow was around what can be done to best set someone up for optimal outcomes? The other day I was speaking with a doctor who was preparing to undertake their own psychedelic experience. I haven't gone into the nitty gritty with them about their motivations, but my sense is that part of it is looking for a respite and a peace and also a sense of joy and connection that can often come with these really powerful tools. Mm. And in my own practice of 
engaging with different people as they consume medicines either for the first time or maybe they're in a place where they haven't had structured um, therapist interventions in the past with the medicine, I've been astounded to realize how prevalent the lack of knowledge there is around um, some of the procedures I take for granted today. Mm. And so you were really somebody who introduced me to some of these um, procedures. So I'm curious to hear uh, if you could outline maybe just like the quick bullet points of what could somebody do as they're about to approach a psychedelic journey? Yeah, good question. I was actually just talking with another practitioner about this today, asking him the same question, trying to resource what other practitioners are doing. And my main takeaway from that conversation is that first and foremost, the preparation and the integration of these experiences is going to be unique for each person, which is one of the reasons why it's important to really have a detailed conversation with the practitioner and start excavating what it is that's alive inside of the person, what they're working on and what they're being challenged by, because that's a huge part of the preparation. So with that, there are some general things that are helpful to use in preparation for these. But I, I really want to emphasize those are secondary to what is unique to each individual as they're approaching these. But some of the general things that we recommend that people do is, well, first of all, there's an intake form that we offer people, which is a form of self-inquiry. It's really diving into and asking the questions like, what am I struggling with? How does that show up in my life? What is my intention for this journey? Why is that important to me? Asking these kinds of questions to get a sense of what is real and alive for you so that you know, or at least have some sort of framework for the potentiality of uh, the content that could be arising within the journey, or it gives you a lens to be able to look back on the experience afterwards and kind of connect the dots as to why those things unfolded. So that's really helpful. And then some of the other steps that we recommend for people is first of all, to do, to adopt some kind of meditative practice or feeling practice. And I don't know if our, the somatic scan or the, gratitude was recorded that we did or was that recorded it, so for those listening before each interview with the guests we go through a process of grounding into our physical forms the space we're in we also investigate what gratitude is percolating inside of us and then we each in, come up with an intention for a conversation these are recorded but to this point they haven't been published so maybe this episode will be different but yeah if, yeah maybe you can include that because one of the things that we recommend to people who come to sit with us is to do a very simple thing that we call a somatic scan, which is a very short five, 10 minute, I wouldn't call it a meditation. It's more of like an awareness practice where you scan through the physical sensations that you're aware of in your body and you allow yourself to feel those as fully as possible, not trying to shift or change or control them in any way for five or 10 minutes. And just observing what they do. Sometimes they grow, sometimes they shrink, sometimes they move, sometimes they change entirely. This is a very, very helpful practice in preparation for medicine ceremonies because you're doing two things. One, you're resensitizing to your felt sense, but two, you're also removing identification from those sensations. So it's simultaneously amplifying your ability to feel but you're able to observe those feelings through your felt sense, 
This is incredible preparation because in, in these medicine spaces, our feelings are very amplified and you can have senses weaving in and out of each other. What's the term for that? Synesthesia. Synesthesia, you know, where you might be able to see sound or, you know, feel a color in your body. Something like a somatic scan is, is a really great primer for that kind of increased intensity of feeling experiences. And then some very, very simple things, clean up your diet, get rid of excess sugars, processed foods, caffeine, other substances that are creating any kind of, um, I don't know, constriction or stickiness or sloppiness in your body. Cause part of the function of these medicines and some more than others, but they tend to clean out the system. So if there's a lot of toxins within the system, they need to wade through that debris and start pushing it out through whatever channels are available, which can add to the discomfort of the experience. So if you can just clean up your diet as much as you can before the experience, that will serve you really well. Following that thread, getting out in nature as much as possible, breathing fresh air, drinking clean water, getting some exercise, connecting to the natural world. And anybody who's sat in an ayahuasca ceremony or a psilocybin ceremony are aware that a big part of those journeys is about coming back into relationship with the earth and the animals and the plants and recognizing that we're all connected. So if we can start making that more of how we actually live and move through the world, then that is more readily available to us in those spaces as well. Other than that, there's some, some other like detailed specifics that I could get into, but in terms of general preparation, that's a really good starting point. And then for anybody who's going into these spaces with a new practitioner or somebody they've never sat with before, highly recommend you have a, a conversation with them and ask them questions. Make sure that you're comfortable with the practitioner before you actually sit with them. Because a big part of these journeys, when you have a facilitator, is the relational component that arises between the two of you. Or if there's multiple practitioners, then between all of you. So being able to actually build and establish that relationship prior to going into the journey is also really important. Yeah, thanks for all that. I'll just layer on the formula that I've arrived at that is a combination of so many disparate traditions. One of the things that I really love about the, the routine that I practice is that I've distilled what seems to be these reoccurring trends or practices or rituals that are spread across traditions that exist all around the world and aren't necessarily of the same vein or lineage. And for me, there's some feels like there's something truthful in the consistency of practices like somatic scans or uh, a sitting meditation practice. Um, so specifically for the, for someone who is about to embark on a psychedelic journey and if they're unsupervised without a therapist, which I'm not here to recommend, but if they are choosing to do that, then I would really encourage them, like Dea said, to come into it with a felt sense of where am I at? What is what are the big themes that have been coming up in my life? And hopefully this is something that they spend time feeling into, maybe even documenting using journaling uh, for a number of days prior to the event. And from here on out, everything I'm going to advocate for really is built on the idea of intentional relating, this idea of consciously shaping your experience. 
And so by focusing on and being attentive to these elements of your life, I think we can really invite in like a level of awareness and participation that isn't superficial or maybe that of the average life that is kind of just floating along. Mm -hmm. So after we have this sense of like what, what's going on for us and feeling into like, what, what are we hoping for? Why, what are our motivations on the day of something that's really, really beautiful is to do the practice that Deus and I did at the beginning of this podcast, preferably if possible, find a park or somewhere that is wild and sit on the ground connected to nature feel yourself as an organism, as an animal with a body and notice how you relate to the world. If you plan on doing this experience in say like, I don't know, a dance hall or a cabin or a basement, that's all well and good. I would still encourage you to spend time at the beginning of the ceremony and at the end of the ceremony, opening and closing it with a connection to nature and your physical form. Once you've established that physical connection, that embodiment, the next step is to spend some time to feel into what are you grateful for? So many traditions espouse this, this belief, this key to the universe, to life and happiness is simply becoming aware and practicing gratitude. It's amazing how powerful this tool is. It's available to us at literally any time. And yet, I don't know how many people make a conscious effort to practice and develop and employ it. So I'd really encourage you to start set the tone by finding something to be grateful for. And then, yeah, the last stage is simply to, to speak, to give voice to what your intentions are and to be heard by the person you're with or by the winds or whatever it is you choose to be heard by. It doesn't even have to be vocal. You could say, say it in your mind, but there's something magic about articulating, about sending out a wish or a belief or a desire or a dream and to really speak it into existence. Mm. Throughout the process, I cannot emphasize enough what Dea said about somatic experiencing. We've talked about it before on the podcast, but bear attention followed by mindfulness and if you don't know what those are, tune into episode, I think it's seven, uh, where I talk about uh, with Andres Leonard. I think I get into more details on it there. But the noticing of sensations and then the ability to direct your spotlight of your attention onto those sensations long enough so that you actually engage with them in a lasting, deep way is a profoundly informative practice. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, I think just simply combining those things and whenever possible, like doing yourself <laughs> the, the grace and generous act of taking some deep breaths. If you feel uncomfortable, return to your breath. Just check, become aware. Am I breathing? Am I curled in on myself? Am I t- holding some part of my body tight? What if I breathe? What if I send breath there? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a useful tool set that can get you through most, if not all, of what life has to throw at you. Yeah, it's really not that complicated. Feel your feelings. <laughs> Explore why you're engaging in the thing that you're about to engage in. Connect to the natural world and mm-hmm. breathe. I just want to give a shout out to Devin Christie. She's an MD who is based in Vancouver. She is on the medical advisory board for 
Numinous Wellness, which is one of the emerging psychedelic companies. Um, but yeah, I've really appreciated how her voice of authority in the emerging like medical field of psychedelics really emphasizes um, the somatic approach as well, because mm-hmm. it is such a key key dom- element of this practice. Yeah. There was a third line of inquiry that I wanted to go down here, and that was of combining or measuring between the scientific exploration of psychedelics and personal development well with the say i'm not sure what the foil of it would be but maybe esoteric or spiritual and i'm curious how you deus um balance those two or combine both yeah how do you engage with them Hmm. yeah i don't think they're all that different to be honest i mean i think the framing that we have on them is often different in people's minds and when like the scientific approach is mentioned, usually people are referring to the specific style of study that is currently taking place with these substances. And as I was mentioning before, it's really focused on specific conditions so that they can figure out the, the application potential in a more therapeutic sense. And in order for those studies to be relevant within the scientific community, you have to approach it in a certain way. Like you have to do double blind um, placebo controlled studies over a long period of time where you're tracking that one specific condition. But there's another kind of study that's also supportive of and emerging into these realms of scientific study within these medicines is... um, Anecdotal, anecdotal data. So anecdotal is... Can I just interrupt for one second? I think anecdotal data is actually an oxymoron. I think the term you may be looking for is qualitative experiments, which is describing um, subjective experiences. Um, I'm not specifically referring to subjective experiences, no. I'm talking about like if you're working with a group as an example, like a group of participants Mm -hmm. within a psilocybin journey and not everybody has the same diagnosed condition, but people have certain effects or qualities that might represent some aspect of that. Like take depression, for example, this is really common people coming in and they have some experience of depression in their life, but maybe they haven't been clinically diagnosed. So you're working in a group environment. It's not controlled as in there's no playlist that you're working off of. There's no structure that you're working with. It's really a living response to whatever is emerging in that process. If you follow up with that participant and you're actually tracking the effects of that experience, then that is that can be taken as supportive information for the study of the applicability of these medicines in relationship to a certain condition. So it's not the same quality in terms of its specificity, but because of the experiential nature of it and the follow-up and the tracking of the effects, it can be used as supportive data. Now it's, um, it's, again, it's not definitive because the conditions are different, but it can be used in a supportive way. And there are quite a few different um, initiatives 
that are really making an effort to gather this data from underground and above ground practitioners to actually compile a database of the, the incredible variety of benefits that can occur from these spaces. That and to be honest, I don't I don't really have my finger on the pulse of the scientific community. That's not the realm that I'm deeply immersed in or connected to. I do have some contacts who are above ground practitioners, psychotherapists who are using psychedelics in controlled environments, and we kind of riff off each other and and share notes. But I think all of that coming together is necessary for us to see both the specific therapeutic application potential in a medical model, but also recognizing that these are organic substances that we don't fully understand that are impacting many different dimensions of our being simultaneously. And to take all of that into consideration as we're all learning together how to move forward in a responsible, effective way when working with these substances. Yeah. It seems like psychedelics among like as a, as a category have such a more potent and also broad ranging series of effects. It's almost that, uh, like you said before, the double, double blind placebo experiments, which are the gold standard and really are set up to measure, uh, very specific variables. So like how much does someone score on a particular test? It's almost like this, the specificity of those tests opens itself up to the probable outcome of missing some of the, um, what are they called? It's like entourage effects or the, the effects that kind of come in on the sides of the peripheries. And yeah, when we look at like something like psilocybin, like people are studying psilocybin as a treatment for so many different things and wow, it's like way more effective than anything we've ever done before. Um, offhand, I forget the numbers, but it's something like at least four times more effective than a year's worth of talk therapy to have like three sessions with a therapist accompanied by psilocybin. That's incredible. And at the same time, that's looking at one chemical that's found in psilocybin, mm-hmm. mushrooms, producing mushrooms. When there's something like 60, like mind altering substances in those mushrooms, and it just so happens that psilocybin is the most like noticeable of them, Mm -hmm. but to reduce it through the like clinical lens of Western science is in some ways really doing a disservice. And yeah, I mean, personally I I'm educated as a, I have a degree in psychology and um, I really appreciate the, the specificity that science does offer. But when I think back to how much of in my own life, I've ignored other approaches for learning because they don't have that, that label of a white lab coat, um, yeah, there's a lot of grief there. Cause it's like, ah, I mean, a lot of different peoples from different cultures and traditions have been doing their own version of experimentation and testing and recording for a long time. So maybe we should yeah. listen to their wisdom. Yeah. And so there's, there's pros and cons to both of these approaches. Cause the, the clinical approach can be quite, um, sterile in that sense where it's, it's focusing too much on individual, components or aspects when there's no way to really gauge the causative forces because there's so many different things that are happening simultaneously, but you're tracking one specific thing so that you can get a clear lens on that. So that's helpful. But then within the underground or the more, you know, neo-shamanic approach to working with these medicines, there can often be a lack of 
um, responsible practitioner uh, practices that are being employed, like code of ethics and best practices and all of these things that are actually being employed to create the kind of optimal environmental conditions for a person to actually receive benefit from the experience instead of potentially being re-traumatized from it. And how I see this kind of weaving into the relevance of, say, the more esoteric or the more mystical or quote-unquote spiritual aspect of it, what I was saying at the beginning is I don't think they're actually different things at all. What I think needs to be kind of reframed is our perspective and understanding of what spiritual means like what sacred actually means and what it refers to it's not as though our human experience is separate or removed from the sacredness or the mystical aspect of life it's intrinsically meshed and merged and entangled and emergent from that space like they're intimately connected and I think there was even a couple studies that ended up um, noting this. You might actually know this better than me, but people who were working with, I think it was psilocybin. Um, I think it was people who were diagnosed with cancer were given approval to work with psilocybin and mm, over 50%, I think it was somewhere up near 80% of the people who ended up working with that medicine said it, it was within the top five most profound experiences of their life and somewhere around 70 percent were voicing what they would call a mystical experience even though it was not done in like a shamanic approach there was some kind of profundity to the experience that they would call mystical or spiritual in how it was deeply impacting them and i think everything in life has the capacity to touch us in that way when we can open up to that possibility even existing. So I see this as the merging of, you know, the scientific and the neo-shamanic is, is recognizing that we are operating within the, so, the same domain of sacredness, which is life and existence as a whole. And then within that, we can really start to come to approach and honor whatever kind of content is arising within these journeys with intentionality and awareness and respect and surrender because there's nothing nothing quote unquote bad or wrong that is arising it's simply an experience that is calling to be felt and seen and known and ultimately integrated which i would define as sacred mm -hmm. yeah i have a deep appreciation for the dynamic quality of these systems that you're referring to and I think that's something that is often not appreciated in Western society, but dynamic here referring to the ability for different components to affect each other simultaneously in such a way that the whole system is kaleidoscoping. It's not a set of linear relationships. And yeah, it seems like so much of reality is based on this kind of interplay and this yeah dependency. So feeling into that, that expansiveness and, noticing how the whole system operates does seem like a really valuable mode of investigation. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about some of the things that people could do to set themselves up for better therapeutic outcomes from engaging with psychedelics, but specifically, I guess, what shouldn't they do? Hmm. Like what practices could they in theoretically introduce 
that would not be useful? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what would not be useful for a person in preparation? Well, I guess, I mean, there's some, or, the or even during, or even during, I think, hmm. So one of the things that we speak about with our clients more in group environments where we're actually having an intention setting ceremony is to clarify that an intention is not a projection on the expected experience of the journey. So you're not invoking a certain experience. You're simply coming into greater realization as to what why you are doing it, <laughs> why you are engaging in this thing. So an example would be, you know, if I want to, if I'm calling in a greater capacity to connect with others authentically in a loving way in my life so that I can experience more joy. Great. That doesn't mean my experience in the medicine is going to be a uh, unlimited joy explosion of love that's allowing me to feel connected to everyone and everything that might happen but that's not what the intention does sometimes the intention combined with all of the elements we were talking about before can actually invoke what we would interpret as the opposite of the intention so if i want to experience more love and connection and joy in my life what might end up arising is all of the things that are preventing that from arising within myself. So maybe there's like guilt and shame and anger and confusion that is what arises for me within the journey as these unprocessed aspects of our being are rising up to be discharged and ultimately integrated into our system so that we have a greater capacity for love and joy and connection. We're not, it's not a magic genie. We're not calling in the, the experience of the thing that we're intending. We are planting a seed with that intention. And everything that happens throughout ceremony is a watering of that seed. It's the plucking out of the weeds. It's the tending so that that quality or that aspect of reality can more fully and completely flourish within our lives, which then goes back into what we we're talking about before, that this is a process of growth and transformation, not necessarily of healing, although you could use those synonymously depending on your definition. So this is one thing that we talk about a lot. Your intention is not projecting an expectation on the content of these experiences. It's knowing why you're doing it, and then you go into the experience and you completely surrender to whatever it is that's arising. And hopefully you're being held in a skillful way throughout that. The intention also allows you to, once that experience is complete, to then look back on it and make meaning from that experience, which allows you to integrate it, carrying it forward. So it provides you with the lens to then extract the meaning and the value and connect the dots of what was invoked for you so that you can live that realization more fully. So the intention is a planting of seed and it's a framing that is going to help you integrate the experience. It's not a projection of expectation on what content is going to unfold. If you can keep that in mind, 
that will be really, really helpful for you. But it also might make you a little bit nervous and a little bit scared because you realize that you actually don't have very much control regarding what comes up within those spaces. And this is true, which is why it's a, a deliberate, intentional act of stepping into the un unknown so that you can become something that you are not currently embodying. You are stepping into a new version of you that maybe, you know, depending on your frame, is the perennial, the, the oldest version of you. <laughs> maybe it's not a, not a new version of you. Maybe it is the original version of you that is rising up to the surface and everything else that got in the way of that original version of you is being pushed out and blasted out so that you can remember who you really are. If you can keep this in mind, then there's, there's more of an opening to the unknown, like allowing yourself to be surprised throughout the actual experience. But if we're going into like specific things of what not to do, preparing for a journey, I would just voice the, the basics, like don't drink a whole bunch of alcohol the day before your ceremony so you're hungover. Don't take multiple mind-altering substances back-to-back. -back. Give yourself time to actually integrate and process the experience instead of you know, loading more onto your psycho-emotional plate and just take really good care of yourself leading up to the journey. Don't, don't engage in the things that you know are depleting you leading up to this kind of experience. Really nurture and take care of yourself in the ways that you need and approach it intentionally. And if you do that to the best of your ability, trust that everything is going to unfold as it should, because it does. Yeah, and just wanted to tie in there the notion of having or establishing for yourself like an intentional ritual. And for some of you, that may be a really uncomfortable or seemingly woo-woo uh, way of framing it. But I think there is a magic there of just like a ritual can be as simple as self-care or as shaving or of doing your push-ups in the morning or whatever it is you do. And yeah, coming at it with this sense of like, this is a sacred space. I'm really doing something important here and I really want to be present for all of it. Yeah, it can be definitely really helpful. I also really like what you're saying, Deus, about the being agnostic as to whether a different sensation or experience throughout the session is good or bad and simply orienting yourself towards it with curiosity and compassion. That's such a huge part of the Buddhist philosophy. And I'm curious, like, it sounds like I would imagine based on your experience of facilitating as many ceremonies as you have, have you seen examples of people who uh, do this really well? And I'm wondering if there's anything you can tease out, um, any trends or themes from those people. Who do what really well? Are able to kind of surf the uncertainty and meet whatever arises, even if it's shocking or uncomfortable, but with a level of equanimity and peace. I wonder if there's any personality traits or any practices, just any continuity. You know, I'll have to respond to this question with a yes and a no, because there, I mean, learning how to surrender into our feelings in a skillful way is certainly something that you can cultivate and grow into 
which you will notice if you do something like a somatic scan regularly, like your sensitivity to sensations definitely increases and your ability to maintain that presence in the face of increasing intensity and increasing subtlety will grow. It's like a muscle that you can strengthen. So that's certainly there. But at the same time, by the very nature of that kind of experience, they catch you off guard. The, the content that is buried beneath our conscious awareness in what you could call our shadow is not something that we're usually looking at. It's the actual frame for our perception of reality. It's like if you're wearing glasses, the frame is not something that you're looking at. You're looking through the lens and you're analyzing everything that you're looking at through your lens. So if the glasses are suddenly popped off of your face and you can't see the world around you and you're also looking at this thing in front of you that you didn't even know was on your face, it's really, really disorienting. It's like your whole world just kind of dissolves or is fragmented all of a sudden and you don't know how to navigate. And this, this is the case with, with all of us as we start going into these unconscious spaces, it's going to catch us off guard, either with the intensity or the confusion, or it could even be the lack of some kind of experience that we're expecting. Like some people go into these spaces and the medicine is, is almost has no perceivable effect to them. And it really upsets them. Like they're looking for some kind of experience that is going to completely, you know, blow up their minds so that they can become this dramatically different person when maybe the experience that they need is to confront their expectations and learn how to be content with living in this human form in this world. Just as an example, you know, so the experiences that arise for us are very mysterious and they tend to poke and prod at the most sensitive and unconscious aspects of ourselves. It doesn't happen in every single ceremony, but if you're working with these medicines regularly, then chances are at some point you will come across something that you don't know how to navigate just by the very nature of what is being brought up to the surface to be integrated because those things are unconscious and they're deep. You know, when we start getting into the core material, oftentimes we're going into, you know, pre-memory, like most of the things that imprinted us happen from the ages of zero to seven. And a lot of the stuff that, you know, when you get into pre and perinatal psychology, there's stuff that happens to us while we're still in the womb that, that impacts our developmental potential, you know, as a person. So there's all of these things that have happened to us that are, that are being carried in our body, in our psyche, in our emotional constitution that we're not consciously aware of that. And if it was something traumatizing and extremely painful, and we built defense mechanisms around it, when those defense mechanisms are stripped away and you open up Pandora's box and it's this thing that was so intense that you buried it away when you were three years old, it is going to overwhelm the system initially. And so it's, this is one of the reasons why, you know, if you're working with these medicines, especially in higher doses that you want to have some kind of space holder or facilitator present who knows how to skillful, skillfully navigate 
um, the potential experiences that can arise in these spaces because you are allowing yourself to be in a very vulnerable state, a very uncomfortable state, potentially a very confusing state. And part of the experience is actually allowing that to happen instead of trying to control it, instead of trying to reel it into you know, managing it skillfully. This can actually be one of the barriers to surrendering to what's trying to happen within your system. So a big part of it is learning how to let go of control. And, you know, maybe that is the skill that we're learning ultimately by going into these spaces is learning how to let go of trying to control an experience and trusting the innate intelligence of our system to come back to a state of health and well-being. A couple times now you've spoken to the advantage of having someone there who's experienced and in a position to facilitate. I'm wondering what sort of views you have on people engaging with those facilitators, either one-on-one or in a group setting. And if you make a distinction or if you see any sort of meaningful difference between um, the more personal practices versus the group settings. And one of the reasons I'm so interested in this, full disclosure, is that as the medical system finds a way of rolling this out to more people, the cost of accessing this is going to be a really important factor of who gets access to them. And credit to Mark Hayden, um, the outgoing founder of uh, Maps Canada, for really emphasizing that group therapy is the means by which we can radically reduce the price of admission to psychedelic therapy because therapists who are trained, if they have to be present with somebody for, let's say, 12 hours, if not more, to facilitate a journey, I mean, just on an hourly wage, that's quite high. So I know that you do both kinds of facilitation. And yeah, I'm just curious, um, what makes you comfortable to do both and what are the pros and cons of each? Mm. It's another really good question. I think there's there's definitely benefit to both. I mean, if you're working in a one-on-one environment with somebody, then you get the benefit of being the sole point of focus. And just by that very nature of that framing, you know, the practitioner can be fully present with every single thing that unfolds for you. And you just get that time and that space. And you don't need to, to navigate whatever potential... Uh, psychological issues we might have with, you know, being witnessed in our process by other people that we don't know, (laughs) you know, but then in the group environment, that's actually part of the healing. That's actually part of the whole benefit is you get to do it with others and you recognize that you're not alone in your process, that, that we're all in this together. And that even though the stories are different and we go through the same challenges and hardships and we all long for the same kind of harmony and love and understanding and connection as each other. And there's also, I guess this would kind of fall more into the, the esoteric category that there, there's also kind of um, an entangling of energies that happens within those group spaces. And 
people who are listening might be able to resonate with this. Sometimes in a group ceremony, you'll be able to feel what's going on inside of another person from across the room. And it resonates with something inside of you. And it might put you into a process, like an emotional process, where it actually rises up and out of your body. And in some magical way, it seems to contribute to that other person's emotional processing. And also being in a group setting, this, I would, I would kind of like put these together, but this is more in the psychotherapeutic realm or the more scientific realm, you could say. We co-regulate nervous systems. The people that you're around, you're, you're, you start co-regulating your nervous systems. And when we're processing a lot of energy, sometimes it actually takes multiple nervous systems to process the amount of energy that's, that's running through us. And so you get that benefit of being in a group is that you actually get to resource the group as you're going through your own process. And you also get the benefit of supporting other people. And oftentimes in the group settings, people comment that that's the most impactful part for them is doing it with others and the incredible intimacy and connection that is formed in such a short period of time and the, the huge openings that happen there. So they, they both have benefit. Um, I would, you know, it's, it's unique to each person, again, whatever it is that you're interested in exploring some people who are uncomfortable in groups prefer to go in one-on-one at first. And if that's what they choose, that's great. But even if that's the case, then it might be something to explore going in a group. Like, why is that inhibition there? Maybe it's something that, you know, there's potential to move into and through. And if the opportunity is available to do that, and it's something that is within your aligns with your intention for why you're sitting with the medicine, then it could be something that's worth looking at. But in terms of, you know, how that relates to the psychotherapeutic model or the more clinical model, I'm not really sure. I don't think that MAPS is doing any group studies currently. Do you know? Not with their psychedelic uh, trials. Those trials are very specific and engineered right now, like over-engineered to give the best possible outcomes. Uh, so that is really looks like having two therapists. Um, I think one of them is even a psychiatrist potentially or psychologist or so somebody with a doctorate. And yeah. yeah, those two clinicians with one client, um, which is yeah. long-term, probably not a sustainable approach. Yeah. I will say one other thing about the groups though, is I can't really comment on how other people work, but myself and Aga work with really small groups. So we're, we're not trying to pack the room because at a, at a certain point, most people do require and benefit from some kind of one-on-one attention throughout their process. So if there's too many people, then there's just too much going on and it can be hard to hold a, a safe enough container for everybody's individual experience within that. So one, one cautionary note that I would put into this is if you are seeking out some, some kind of group experience, make sure that there are enough practitioners to responsibly tend that number of participants. And there's no rule for this. Again, every practitioner has their own views and approaches on this. I myself have sat in an ayahuasca ceremony that had 60 people in it. And I think there was eight practitioners there. And one of the participants there uh, who I ended up developing a relationship with 
after the ceremony was significantly re-traumatized in that experience because they weren't given the kind of attention that they needed at the time that something really important was coming up. And so the protocol that myself and Aga um, follow is two participants per one practitioner. So if we're working with six participants in our ceremonies, it'll be myself and Aga, and then we'll have one additional support uh, for those kind of group environments. But I think we kind of lean more on the side of caution than a lot of other practitioners. Well, that sounds very wise given the, yeah, given the stakes in this. I want to echo what you're saying and say that throughout my years of experience, it seems like somewhere between six to 10 people is really like an optimal um, place for minimizing the risk and uh, while retaining the benefits of the group setting. I just also want to share that part of my um, education in the process of becoming a therapist has revealed the research, these double double blind uh, placebo studies showed that um, group therapy is often almost identical to individual uh, counseling. Not quite, but it's, I think it's around 90% of the therapeutic outcomes um, with say one practitioner and four participants. Um, <laughs> that's something that really astonished me. And yeah, that's really so, interesting. Yeah. And I think it opens a lot of doors if we can open ourselves even to the possibility of considering that maybe there are like we were talking, like literal entourage effects of being in community, of being heard and seen, of overcoming the resistance that is being vulnerable in front of strangers. And just from personal experience, I've been a part of, I'm not sure, 10 plus um, group sessions at this point with psychedelic medicines. And oftentimes I go into those sessions not knowing anyone and I come out of it feeling like I've made a level of brothers and sisters and maybe they're not people that I go on to have lasting relationships where I call them on a daily basis, but almost without exception, I feel a sense of kinship of understanding and of ease in relating to these people. And there's something mm -hmm. like, I don't know how many times you can say it about psychedelics, but profound and mystical about going through one of these processes united uh, alongside someone else. At least that's been my experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, I resonate with that really strongly and would echo the same kind of sentiment that even if I don't maintain, you know, a permanent <laughs> communication <laughs> connection with that person, like we're not checking in or might not even see each other ever again there's still a really deep and very real connection that was formed. And that's incredibly valuable. That's been really, really beautiful. And such an important part of my journey personally is opening back up to connecting with other people. And these medicines have really helped with that. I think something for my own journey that at different times in my life, I've been more uh, adept at, and there's periods where it seems like a real struggle and, Lately, honestly, it's felt like it's more of the struggle thing, but it's being able to make eye contact with strangers or to be the first one to offer a bold smile and an open posture. And it's so, for myself, it's something that's not intuitive. It's not something that's like my first nature. Um, and yet I think we've all received that at one time or another. Somebody who just very 
um, sincerely offers that kind of warmth and um, gener gener generous connection. And I'm thinking to how many ceremonies I've gone to where I show up, usually one of the first people to arrive, and I walk in and people trickle in and maybe I'll give them like a really quick perfunctory like, oh yeah, hi, hi, yeah, my name is Blake. And then like, it's that awkward, we don't know what to talk about. We don't know, like, we don't know each other and like, not sure if we're like even willing to invest the energy to get to know each other. And then by the end of the ceremony, like something's transpired where we'll like face each other, make sustained eye contact that feels like we see each other with a level of clarity that is so open and true and harmonious. And we'll go in for a hug and it's, yeah, it's just like such a great microcosm or like example of what these kind of processes of sustained intentional like exploration of oneself through like the combination of plant medicines, the different spirits and molecules that they contain, as well as what usually accompanies them, which is like ritual and music. And mm -hmm. yeah, it, it can't be emphasize enough what a beautiful experience it is to participate in that form. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is about, say we take a group setting and there's six or seven people and who come together um, and are doing consuming say psilocybin together. I know in the retreats that you lead or um, the sessions that you hold, that music is a really big part of it. And a little plug here and to stoke your ego a bit, you are a phenomenal musician, Deus. Uh, mm. Thank you so much for the music you make. I'm curious what, what you think it is about sound that um, melds or meshes so well with the sessions. And just a little plug here, in another episode, I talk with Shine Edgar, who I know you as well know, and he is also somebody who really gets into the nitty gritty of why music is important to the human experience. So for listeners, you can also check out that podcast. Hmm. That's a big one. It's a big question. Music is medicine. Sound is medicine. Um, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole <laughs> of more new agey <laughs> concepts, but just to touch on the reality that everything is vibration. You know, you've probably heard this from kind of like floofy, more like new age communities, you know, it's like, oh yeah, everything's vibration, but it is scientifically accurate. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, everything if, has a frequency. Yeah, if we just grant that all things are made out of particles, particles are embodiments of energy, and energy by definition has a frequency or a resonance, and it may be yeah. imperceivable. Um, one concept I love here is the notion of a umwelt, which is a German word for all that which your sensations can reach. It's like the range of your senses, and so it may be that the sound of a molecule isn't, doesn't fall within the frequency range or the Hertz of what we can perceptually hear, but that's not to say it isn't itself comprised of sound or even music. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the methodologies that I'm trained in, don't worry, I'll loop this back. One of the methodologies that I'm trained in is called transformative art and transformative art in a nutshell is combining 
consciousness studies with art therapy with kriya yoga philosophy and it's basically a methodology for resensitizing your internal landscape or your felt sense on a physical but also on an emotional and very subtle vibrational level and dissolving the fears the inhibitions the blockages that are preventing you from expressing that authentically and the avenues that we explore through that modality is what you would traditionally call art like painting or singing or dancing or sculpting or you know telling a story or embodying something using these artistic avenues of expression to really explore the energies that are being held within us so that it can flow through us and it's through that kind of authentic expression that we can develop really deep meaningful intimate connections with other people because we're actually revealing living energies that are inside of us that it turns out other people can relate to <laughs> and so when we start inviting something like sound and music into ceremony of course it's going to impact us in a meaningful way because there's there's a resonance that starts to occur we're also highly sensitive to sensations and to sound and to color and to texture like our senses are on high alert so it's it's as though that sound can actually penetrate deeper into us and we can feel the profound effects that it is eliciting within our system because it it translates it's received by our system on a physical on a mental on an emotional and on a, on an energetic level and this is always the case this isn't unique to being in ceremony i mean all of us have had the experience of listening to music and being emotionally affected by it in some significant way or having like a soundtrack that is like the theme of your life at that particular time you know like look back on when i was in high school and i was listening to to the new green day album uh, american idiot every day on the way to school because it was like it was speaking to something that i resonated with that i needed to hear that i needed to feel that I was already feeling and it was just giving voice to it in a way that wasn't like an a, an analytical breakdown it was like a vibrational felt artistic expression of something I was feeling inside of myself all of us have had that experience so when we're bringing in medicine songs or ikaros or whatever it is that's being brought into a space it's it's an extension of how we feel and relate and express in this world so of course it's going to impact us that being said there's also this very fascinating component that i absolutely love and incredibly mystified and um really curious about because i don't actually know but the my felt sense is that these songs especially the ones that have um some kind of lineage to them or like some of the songs that have come through me at various times in my life they, they seem to have their own spirit their own essence their own intelligence like they have they seem to have their own personality and application potential different songs do different things like you wouldn't listen to beautiful orchestral music as a way of stirring up some kind of deep seated discomfort right that's more of like a soothing softening kind of sound quality to it 
So these ikaros, these medicine songs, they 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 seem to carry their own intelligence that communicates in a way that words might not be able to and actually pass into and through deeper layers of the being that otherwise we might not be able to access in ways that I don't fully understand and don't believe I ever fully will. But I will say that I have a personal relationship with a lot of the songs that we sing in the ceremony space. And they're like, uh, not only friends, but almost like a council behind me. And sometimes one of the council members will kind of move in and take over my body. And it's like, if I resist singing that song, it will actually start creating a lot of discomfort in my form because it's wanting to be sung so strongly that it seems to have its own intelligence and it wants to come out to offer the, the specific kind of medicine that it has to offer. So there's, you know, the very practical aspect of, of course, we're impacted by sound. So why not use it in a, an intelligent way within those spaces? But there's also the more mystical quality that these songs, these, these sounds, they have their own medicine. And I would even say from my experience that they have their own intelligence. One of the things I pulled out from what you just shared was the idea of almost like a Jedi council of songs and spirits that are uh, coming to be or intelligences or energies or whatever you want to call it um, that are taking the shape of these these different uh, embodied styles of music. And I also imagine them with uh, a lot of eyeshadow in the style of Green Day. I think that's appropriate. Um, a little <laughs> plug here for anybody who's looking for their own kind of medicine songs um, or access. And especially if you're somebody who comes from a Western tradition and is looking some for something that might be um, familiar or of your lineage, I'd really recommend you check out uh, Beautiful Chorus. They're a group that makes some really, really profound and uh, yeah, just wonderful soundtracks for different kinds of ceremonies. And also recently, John Hopkins University has been publishing both curated playlists as well as their own original compositions. Just recently, they released a yes. like... I don't know what to call it, like electronic, almost dubstep um, playlist or album called Singularity. And it is phenomenal if you're into that sort of thing. Who's the artist of that? It's just, John Hopkins University. Yeah, just published as John Hopkins University or John huh. Hopkins. Um, I played it for my fiance and she is like, oh my God, I would not want to be doing this or listening to this. That'd be a really intense. And meanwhile, I'm like, this is right up my alley. So uh, maybe give it a quick listen through before you throw it on for the actual trip. But um, yeah, really rich material there. I'm curious, Deus, what, um, maybe we can get into a, a bit more of a lightning round and shorter questions here. Um, but I would love to hear you speak a little bit to who some of your most influential teachers or mentors along your path were. Lightning round. Some of the local mentors and teachers that I've had that people can look up. Um, one is Satyan Raja. He is the founder and lead trainer of Warrior Sage Trainings and Accelerated Evolution. He's a phenomenal master coach who works in the realms of um, consciousness 
and how you can start cultivating the ability to navigate and create and craft your own experience of life by understanding and applying the aspects of consciousness within yourself. He's a phenomenal teacher. Another one is uh, Chris Austin Fletcher, who's the owner and operator of Half Moon Haven out on the Sunshine Coast. And he teaches a methodology of um, harmonious and comprehensive life balance through a system he calls the nine rings of alignment. He's really phenomenal. So those are some local people who have had a big influence on me. Another one of my teachers is Trevor Yellick, who's the founder of Numa Somatics Breathwork. It's a form of integrative breathwork therapy, probably the most comprehensive and helpful facilitator training I've come across, bar none. He is one of the greatest teachers I've ever come across, genuinely humble, wise, incredibly experienced um, person. And he also does online trainings. So you can find him really easy online, Numa Somatics. And we'll put links in the show notes to each of these resources, along with everything else discussed in this episode. The teacher that I was um, referring to before, the founder of Transformative Art and Awakening Arts Academy, her name is Dana Lynn Anderson. And she's based out of two locations, depending on the time of year. She's in Laurelwood, Oregon, or Assisi in Italy. And so those are people you can find. <laughs> uh, one of the, the biggest influential figures for me in my life has been Paramahansa Yogananda. And you may or may not have heard of him. He's the author of Autobiography of a Yogi, which is a very well-known book. Um, his teachings completely transformed my life. He, he was the major spiritual catalyst for me to actually pursue uh, a life worth living. And I actually, I've spent almost about two years of my life living at his ashrams and spiritual communities and have gone through his trainings and I'm initiated through Kriya Yoga. That was one of the big things that influenced me. Um, and then I've also been influenced heavily, not so much by an individual teacher, but more of uh, the community that I was exposed to down in Southern Alberta um, on Blackfoot territory on the blood reserve in Southern Alberta. Um, two of my friends and mentors, Billy Metcalf and Dilia Metcalf, who are pipe carriers and um, Sundance leaders, they invited me to go and experience the Sundance after I had been sitting in their sweat lodge for some months. And I went down to support the Sundance as a firekeeper and eventually as a drummer. And that has been a, a hugely influential experience for me to be exposed to how that community really approaches ceremony and being in right relationship with each other and with the earth has deeply impacted me. So I would summarize that by saying, um, indigenous approach to ceremony and life in general. So I'd say those are some of the, the major influences on me over the, the course of mostly since my, my twenties, I'd say. Well, thanks for yeah, naming each of those individuals or those groups. And yeah, I really appreciate the, the way that they coalesce um, and interweave with each other to, to lead to the kind of conversations and practices that you and I are, are having right now. Amongst all these individuals, what sort of uh, traits or practices do you see that 
um, come out that maybe we haven't talked about already in this conversation? Can you clarify that? Yeah, like what I'm, I'm wondering if there's earlier, I alluded to the overlap I saw between different traditions, um, different practices, different outlooks on life or values that I was surprised, for instance, um, the idea of cleaning your bed. I was first thing in the morning. I was really astonished to find out that um, Theravada Buddhism, which is in Asia, uh, emphasizes that and historically has emphasized that as one of the first things somebody can do to start their practice and their spiritual awakening. And lo and behold, you go to somewhere like ancient Greece and the Stoics said something very similar, advocating that if you want to um, increase your awareness and control over your life, then a really good practice is to start by making your bed. I'm wondering if there's anything that you've noticed, any commonalities amongst these disparate teachers. You know, one of the major commonalities you've already voiced, actually, it's some iteration of the somatic skin. It seems to be such a huge foundation for a lot of these teachings of tuning in really, really deeply with yourself on a physical and also on an emotional and then eventually on a really subtle energetic level so that you can have access to those deeper and more like fundamental aspects of your being that normally don't enter into your awareness. And then that's a doorway into a lot of deeper meditative states as you really cultivate this witness consciousness quality without diluting or deflecting your human experience. It actually becomes intrinsically connected to it. Your ability to sense and feel grows, but also your ability to maintain this observational quality to your experience. That That is across the board applied in some way, shape, or form to all of those teachers. Right on. Do you have any resources, either books or podcasts or things that you could point our listeners to if they're interested in developing uh, their ability to do somatic scans or anything else that you think is of the top level value for development and growth? Sure. Yeah. If you're interested in exploring the somatic scan, a really interesting access point to it is through the books of David R. Hawkins. He wrote Power Versus Force. Another one of his is Truth Versus Falsehood. But the one that kind of leads into the practice itself is called um, Letting Go, The Pathway of Surrender. And he really goes into how this very, very simple practice of sitting and feeling your feelings um, can lead you all the way to the heights of enlightenment. There's a really beautifully articulated book, and it's a very, very simple practice to put into place. I personally had a, a very profound experience when I was implementing that on a daily basis. One of the most powerful emotional releases I've, I've ever had in my life came from that book. So that's one thing that people can explore. If people are more, um, I guess, cognitively oriented, if they're more interested in learning about some of the details of how and why we are the way that we are as people living in this society, a really fascinating deep dive exploring a lot of these things is a 52-part series that you can find for free on YouTube by a professor from Toronto, cognitive scientist named John Verveke. 
and his series, which you can also find on Spotify, is called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And he's got some excellent interviews that you can find where he talks about some of the therapeutic application potential of psilocybin mushrooms. And in his 52-part series, he does a really, really deep dive into cognitive science, but also different shamanic principles and practices, as well as the effects and place of psychedelics within the unfolding evolution of who we are as humans. Right on. One of the, relating back to what you said at the beginning, uh, one of your intentions was to play. So what are you doing today and to play? I already did something today to play. Yeah. What was that? <laughs> what am I going to do after this conversation? Um, it's kind of funny, actually. There's a part of me that is embarrassed about this aspect of me, but I really love to play games. I really love to play games. And it doesn't really matter what kind of game it is, whether it's like an in-person game or a group game or a board game or a video game, whatever kind of game it is i really really love playing those so this is actually kind of a funny story um we've been playing quite a bit of board games and doing like puzzles in our house over the last little while as i'm sure everybody listening to this can understand and one of the games that we were playing recently was called pandemic have you ever played that game i have not but i've heard great things it's a really good game, but it's it's really creepy, actually, playing that game with everything that's going on in the world right now, because it got really popular about a year before COVID just emerged in our world. And a lot of the things that they describe and the, the rules and the details of the game is really, really eerie. But anyway, we we're playing that game and having, having a lot of fun. But it's a pretty simple game once you get used to it. And so myself and my brother and one of our friends, we decided, okay, we're going to get like a more complicated game. Let's get something like really juicy. And so we did some research and found the best multiplayer games. And without doing any research as to what this game actually was, we bought this $125 game called Gloomhaven. And I'm like, okay, this is going to take us like a half hour to learn. Probably it's going to be super complicated. We got it. It's in this massive box that weighs like 20 pounds. We had, it took us like an hour just to unload all the individual pieces to it. We had to watch two and a half hour videos of YouTube telling us how to actually set up the game and all the details of how to play. And then we ran through a few scenarios and probably put like 12 hours into this game, just learning how to play it. And we just finally got to the point where I feel like we understand the rules now. And it's starting to get really, really fun because it's a very complex, very intricate strategy RPG game, which is like totally my jam. So myself and my brother and, and my friend, we spent probably about three hours today, like finally enjoying the game because we know how to play it. So my buddy is about to take off and uh, leave for a couple of weeks. So we scheduled in some time to play that game for a few hours today before this call. Wow. I really applaud your yeah commitment to figuring that out. That's a no small undertaking. Is if it... I knew what was involved, I probably wouldn't <laughs> have started. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. 
Is it similar to like Dungeons and Dragons? Like, is it like yeah, open world yeah. concept? It's like a board game version of D and D. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I'll have to yeah. look into it because yeah, that sounds like a whole world. Yeah. If you if anybody listening to this enjoys those kind of games, I highly recommend it because it it it's also like it's very imaginative because you know it's it's D style it's role playing but it's also very strategic so I, I find that it it really actually feeds a lot of different parts of myself that want to go into these fantastical imagination realms but also like learn and develop strategy and technique and like there's a there's a lot of different parts of me that are lighting up as i'm playing this game and it's it's making me feel like a kid again whenever I'm playing it, and I think that we could all really use a lot more of that right now. I don't have much experience with D and D, but uh, RPGs are definitely something that I can really relate. I I get so much out of that idea of taking on a different uh, made up character and then like pushing the edges and seeing what might and magic you can bring to the world. It's such a wonderful way to play. Yeah. Someone just said to me today that imagination is one of the most important qualities that we can cultivate. Mm. And that, that really struck me because I'm, I'm, it's, it's alive for me right now. I'm, I'm realizing how much joy I find in these, these realms of limitless imagination that were so easy to access as a child that have somehow like vanished as I got older. And, and to start opening that back up again is so deeply satisfying. Mm-hmm. Throughout my life, I've worked as in different roles, uh, either as a formal like elementary school teacher or as a mentor uh, with youth in, in nature programs, whether scouts or the Eight Shields model. And it's been amazing to me, like how nourishing and invigorating uh, developing and practicing uh, imagination is for people of all ages. And I'm constantly baffled and amazed when I speak to adults who reveal that they don't do that and that they feel awkward or like those modes of being or those muscles have atrophied. Like I've talked to men who are like 28 who have like, yeah, like I can't remember the last time I played with imagination. And I've talked to people in their seventies who are like, I can't remember the last time I played. And I, I, yeah, I just want to say like having facilitated um, these sort of experiences for adults too, like people ranging from 20 to 70, it is so quick for you to get back on the bike and get going at high speed with imagination. Like I've literally seen 70 year old women like get into dodgeball fights with like imaginary <laughs> wolves within like 10 minutes of it being introduced. And at the beginning they're like, what you're, you want me to do what? And then 10 minutes in they're like scuffed up knees and they're like screaming with like ferocious battle cries. So yeah. If you don't have that in your life, maybe, yeah, go go get a new board game or find some friends who to go play Capture the Flag with. Yeah, I was actually inspired because play is something we're actually bringing more and more into the offerings that we're facilitating, specifically the retreats that we put together, adding in different aspects of play throughout the whole thing. It's so important and it's just really lighting up people who come into the space and it's, it's serving as a reminder to me of how important that is and that I haven't, I haven't yet fully settled into really fully allowing myself to enjoy that. Like it even, I'm noticing it now, even on this call, like I had embarrassment come up when I had this 
almost like I was admitting to something that, you know, it's like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this thing, but I like playing games. Like it was a bit, like it was a bad thing, but it's, it's true. <laughs> and and it, it, like bringing people into those spaces and really appreciating how much that really opens. And that, you know, this is actually really great content for this um, podcast. If, if somebody's listening to this and it seems disconnected from what we were talking about before, it's so intimately connected like when we get into these spaces and it turns into all shadow work all the time life can get incredibly serious very very quickly especially if we're working with really heavy or dense energies or you know unprocessed trauma from childhood a big part of that is liberating the inner child so that the inner child can be free to feel and to express and to play this is our inherent nature and this is what we're coming back to so to actually invite that into you know this this committed and intentional pursuit of transformation and self-realization all of that is wonderful and a big part of that is learning how to live in a way that is playful and fun and full of wonder and joy and I think all of us want that. So to, to come back to that, you know, to know that that is a part of this too, that you don't need to take, you can take something to heart without taking it so seriously. And so to play as, you know, this is actually one of the things that you can do to prepare and to integrate <laughs> a psychedelic experience is to play more, figure out what you enjoy doing and do it. Well said. I think we're a little ways off from being in the lightning round now. <laughs> but <laughs> right, I we'll forgot keep, we were in the lightning we'll, round. We'll keep going. Um, yeah, I mean, just what jumps out at me from that is the idea of on top of somatic experiencing and doing these body scans and noticing the different textures and qualities of sensations as they arrive and coupling that with an openness and a kindness and a curiosity to what is without the need to deflect or fight it or run away. And just inviting those sensations and directing your spotlight of attention to them. There's this third layer, which Deus is speaking to here, which is noticing when there are things missing. And in the eight shields model, this, this, which is this tradition of nature connectedness that is trying to teach people like whole body living. There's this idea of finding your edge. Where is the edge of your awareness of your knowledge? what area are you like, Oh, like I, I know there is this idea of play, but I can't actually like when I think of that or feel into that, like, uh, it kind of feels deadened or it feels like blank. Like I'm not sure I know there should be, or there might be more, but I don't really have access to it at this moment. Well, that can be an opportunity in those, in those examples to like, just sit at that edge and be persistent with like probing it or like gently welcoming it and seeing like, well, Oh, I, I realized that I'm like afraid of wanting to, like Deus was saying, like to acknowledge that I have this desire to play a board game and be like, ah, what is it like to explore that edge? What if you, what options are of behavior available to you that you can mm, test out and see like what happens? You might discover that certain behaviors unlock doors that lead to green pastures filled with opportunity and nourishment. So yeah, I would really encourage you to, to layer that on. 
that's actually intimately connected to uh, integration. One thing that it can be helpful to consider is that in terms of integration, you could simplify it into two components. There's there's definitely more of a passive component to integrating an experience, which is to rest and rejuvenate and take care of yourself and and allow the system to just recalibrate, you know, because the journeys themselves are quite intense and will move a lot of things just by the nature of what unfolds. And so part of integration is just allowing your system to recover from that. And for those transformations that occurred within the space to really take root and to stabilize. But then there's also an active component to integration, which is what I hear you speaking to right now. And it requires our participation and it requires some degree of effort to actually harvest, okay, what did I learn from this experience? How do I live this more fully? And what specifically can I do? And to, to make it a practice to start implementing those things, whatever they are for you, because they are going to be unique to each individual, but we don't get a, you know, what are those things called hall pass or a get out of jail free card, just because we've been in a plant medicine ceremony. It's actually calling us more into taking responsibility for our own lives. And that active component is something that, you know, if you don't do it, then you're not really capitalizing on all of the benefit that you've earned from that experience. And if you do do those things and know that it's going to be sporadic, but as you engage in those things, then you're, you're crafting a new way of being in the world. And ultimately that is your responsibility. It's, it's not, you know, a teacher or a plant medicine or some sort of external environment that is going to equip you with your own sovereignty. This is something that needs to be cultivated and tended. And there is an active part to that. Totally. Yeah. Well said. Okay, we're going to finish up with just a couple questions and trying to keep this short. Um, okay. Specifically, I wanted to draw out a behavior or a tool that I've seen you, both you and Aga use in your ceremonies that I think is absolutely um, maybe not essential to safe and helpful settings, but it is like an amazing tool, one that can really expand the outcomes. And it's that of radical accountability to specify what I'm speaking to. I've noticed that both of you have a habit of full transparency and honesty of using your own struggles as examples for different things you've talked about. Mm. And I'm curious, um, why that is, why, why is it that you bring that into your practice? Hmm. I don't know who, whose stories would I tell <laughs> if I don't tell my own? I don't know how to answer that question. It's like everything that I experience is I can, I can relate it only to my own experience. So if we're talking about a concept that's coming up for somebody, of course, I'm going to relate my own experience with that, that same kind of scenario. It just makes sense to me. I don't know what I would do otherwise. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a totally an appropriate answer. I just want to juxtapose that against what maybe the traditional or like uh, clinical approach often is, which is one of, um, therapist and, uh, client distinction. And of this idea of like traditional psychoanalysis Freudian style would have the 
clinician be like an authority figure that it should not uh, like reveal any personal details. And mm. I just say, yuck, like that is such a, uh, it seems like the antithesis of meaningful um, connective tissue in a relationship that can evoke healing outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to take the time to applaud you for doing that. Don't stop. Be honest, be vulnerable, show that everyone makes mistakes. It's a great move. Mm. I have a question about your physical workout routine. I've had the good pleasure of um, going into a trampoline park of all things with you <laughs> where you managed to do, I think you jumped like 200 feet in the air. I think there was like 30 backflips or something. Um, how'd you do that? <laughs> Years of training. But seriously, like what, what, um, what is your physical, what does your like workout routine look like? It's actually quite sloppy right now. If I'm honest about it, I'm, I'm working with somebody to who's helping me actually rebalance my body. Cause there's a lot of areas that I'm not firing. So I'm actually combining, combining, um, structural body work with custom movements to start rebalancing my body. And there's been a lot of sitting down over the last few years, you know, working in, uh, facilitation roles. There is a little bit of walking around the room, but there's, there's quite a bit of sitting and stagnation in terms of movement. So this is actually one of the issues that I'm, that I'm working on right now is my physical well-being, making sure that I'm doing something every single day. So I can't give you a workout routine because <laughs> I don't even know the names of all the things that I'm doing. I just know that they're custom tailored for what's going on in my body. But I also have like the incredible blessing of having a background in you know, a lot of athletics. So I was in competitive gymnastics and volleyball and soccer when I was growing up and it just created like a really solid structural foundation in my body that has lasted up until this point and I want to keep it going. So it's, it's getting to the point now where it's taking more, more effort on my part to, to maintain the strength and health of my body, but constantly revisiting that because it's something that I'm struggling with or have been over the last couple of years. Right on. And so when you're doing that kind of training, are you doing weight training? Are you doing endurance training like cardio runs or what's, what is Yeah, it's a combination of going on periodic runs. And then there's a specific sequence of exercises that I have. Only one of them uses weights and it's incredibly light because it's working on my shoulder. Everything else is body weight, and doing certain movements that challenge my range of motion and my ability to balance in certain positions so that I can strengthen muscles that aren't firing and actually come back into alignment in my body. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, thanks for sharing. I'll uh, start moving my body in weird ways that hurt and <laughs> hopefully I can do a hundred backflips too. Um, one idea I wanted to run by you is this distinction um, that I've adapted from a Sam Harris uh, essay or um, speech of his. And my adaptation is of describing psychedelics as a jetpack, whereas other practices that we may use, such as meditation or mind, different mindfulness practices, are the equivalent of hiking. And I wanted to hear your thoughts about if there was something in that metaphor that gets missed or that simile, I should say, um, or yeah, just like to hear your first impressions of that rendering. Um, just off the top of my head, I would agree with it. Plant medicines and 
other substances has have the ability to catalyze a lot of really intense, really deep things very, very rapidly. That's actually one of the dangers of working with these substances. And this is one of the criticisms, you know, about um, practitioners, but also approaching this as like as a business or as a form of therapy, because you never really know what you're invoking. And one of the main things that I was taught through the transformative art training is you never want to invoke more than you have the capacity to hold as a facilitator. So it's a very delicate space. And when you're stepping into the unknown, how do you prepare to hold the unknown as a facilitator? It takes a lot of care and fluidity and responsiveness to a huge spectrum and a huge range of experiences. And we never really know what's going to happen for a participant in any given moment. And to be fully present there is a, is a huge responsibility that I don't take lightly. And I'm constantly humbled and awed by the potential of these spaces. So that is a risk. You know, you, you are unlocking some, or you have the potential to unlock and unleash some really deep-seated stuff. And there's a reason why the defense mechanisms are around those things. You know, we, we have a very intelligent system that has built defense mechanisms around certain sensations and certain feelings because it needed to in order to survive at the time that that experience occurred. So we're not fighting against the system. We want to actually listen to and build a healthy relationship with the system. And so when people are approaching these kinds of experiences in the hopes that it will be a magic pill or will just kind of resolve everything inside of them without them having to do anything, that is dangerous because they don't know what they are unlocking or why they're unlocking it. So this is why it's so important to really approach with preparation and with intention in a proper space, in a proper setting with the, with a facilitator that you trust and going into an integration process deliberately because you are working with very deep aspects of your being. And there are, there are countless ways to access that kind of content. It doesn't, you know, pretty much every healing and spiritual avenue of exploration is ultimately guiding you to greater self-awareness and self-actualization in that sense, you know, whether it's psychotherapy or Kriya yoga or breath work or whatever it is, it's all eventually going to start weaving itself into the things that are inside of you. <laughs> that's, that's what it is, but yeah, you definitely have the potential to Un unpack a lot of things very, very quickly uh, working with these medicines. And so the, the potential of them is incredible, but the risk is also quite high. And I think it's really important to keep that in mind. Mm. Thanks for speaking to that. It is something that should not be taken lightly. Well, Deus, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate the playful attitude and the wonderful perspective you bring to this topic and to your work and helping people really remember who they are and what they can be in this world. So yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Blake. This has been a lot of fun. If people wanted to find out more about you or what you do, uh, where should they go? It's really easy to find me. My name across all of the different platforms, Instagram, Facebook, email, website. It's all the same thing. It's just my name, 
which is Deus, D-E-U-S, Forche, F-O-R-T-I-E-R. So my, my website is deusforche.com. There's contact info there if you want to reach out to me. It's the same across all social media platforms. But if you're interested in the work that Aga and I do together, then you can find that at thesomaheart.com thesomaheart.com. And that's the best way to reach out to me if you're interested in more um, ceremonial offerings that we do. The Somas, T-H-E-S-O-M-A-H-E-A-R-T.com. Correct. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything you want to say to the listeners before you go? What are you going to do to play today? (laughs) Go do it. Go do it right now. and have fun until next time 